Can I hit the pause button on the First Peter series there for today? <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 41 is where I'd like you to turn. Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to read the first ten verses. Isaiah chapter 41, beginning our reading in verse 1. Let's all hear the Lord's word. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely even by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The isles saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped every one his neighbor, and every one said to his brother, be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the off, for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And God will add his own blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow with me for a moment, please? Let's seek the Lord together. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name now to the throne before we preach the holy word, praying much for the Spirit's help is enabling the wisdom that the servant of God needs to declare the truth. Make him the mouthpiece of God this morning and give the hearing ear to thy people. May they know that the Lord has come down with the word in season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. My text is found at the end of verse 9 and end of verse 10 this morning. Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Those verses hold a very special place in my heart, because it was through these verses particularly that the Lord called me into the ministry. I had a real struggle coming to grips with how someone like me could ever be a minister of the gospel. So inadequate, so unworthy, so unfit. And it was after a lot of praying and searching the scriptures that as I was reading through this chapter one evening, in the little study that was a side of the house we lived in up in Pennsylvania, that this text stood out in neon lights, so to speak. I needed to hear God tell me, Thou art my servant. 
I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. But long before the Lord brought those verses to my heart, over 30 years ago, he brought them to his people who were in some very difficult circumstances. The sad and oft-repeated phrase in the Old Testament that describes these difficult circumstances is carried away captive. Carried away captive. It's hard for us to grasp what life would have been like living in Babylonian captivity if you were a Jew. Most of us have enjoyed living in the comfort and safety of our homes all of our lives. We have lived in a country where freedom and liberty, for the most part, is protected by our Constitution and even with the government regulations, a way of life in America, the land of the free, it's called. But such was not the case with the Jews carried away into captivity in Babylon, what is now called Iraq. They now have to experience again what their forefathers experienced in the land of Egypt hundreds of years earlier. Bondage, servitude, reproach, isolation, persecution, toil, and labor of the worst kind. So for these Jews in captivity to whom Isaiah is writing, these were very, very hard days. Days of great sorrow, days of great fear, days of great discouragement days of unrelenting fear as they faced hard questions about their past, about their present, and their future. So as the weeks in captivity turned into months, and the months into years, and the years into decades, one of the greatest fears, and the thing that perhaps caused them the greatest amount of discouragement was that God no longer cared for them and was not going to deliver them from this awful, awful calamity. Read their feelings back in chapter 40, verse 27. The Lord characterizes their questions, statements, fears. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? The Lord's just passed us over. He's cast us away. But the Lord is intent on bringing comfort to his fearful, discouraged, and hurting people. And so the Lord says to them in these well-known words of my text, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. While this promise was certainly directed toward the Jews in captivity, its application is not confined to them. It's God's promise to his people in any age, in any land, and in any set of circumstances where they find themselves troubled with fear, overcome with dismay, and discouragement. The Lord deals frequently with the fear that has often gripped his children like an iron vice, paralyzing them, crushing their joy in the Lord, destroying their confidence in the Lord and his word, and leaving them plagued with anxiety about the future. Whether the future is tomorrow next week, next month, next year, or even eternity itself. What Christian doesn't know the power, the awful power of fear? Perhaps I'm speaking to someone here this morning who's begun this first day of the week with a heart and mind weighed down by fear and dismay from whatever the source well, it's my privilege and it's my responsibility to tell you that this ancient promise is as valid, as true for the Lord's people now as it was for them. God has not changed. We have changed, but he hasn't. 
You should not be living in fear, and you don't have to. You should not be, and you do not have to. So from that last part of verse 9 and verse 10, I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of God's cure for the plague of fear. God's cure for the plague of fear. First off, fear. Fear is one of the most common ailments found among the Lord's people. Nothing is unique, nothing revelatory. I can tell you about the Hebrew word translated fear. Sometimes you can look at the Hebrew word, the particular case it comes in, and say, well, that throws some more light upon it. But here, this is a, what's called a primitive root word. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew word here, it means fear. What is fear? Well, Webster says that fear is a feeling of anxiety and agitation caused by the presence or nearness of danger, evil, or pain. Agitation, anxiety, caused by the presence or nearness of danger, evil, or pain. A word often connected with fear in the Old Testament is that word dismayed, found in our text. For instance, both Moses and the Lord told Joshua, as he was about to take over Moses' position and become the leader of the children of Israel to the promised land, fear not, neither be dismayed. After giving him the instruction for building the temple, David said to Solomon his son, Fear not, nor be dismayed. When a confederacy of the Moabites and Ammonites came against King Jehoshaphat, and he and all Israel were afraid, Jehaziel the prophet said, Fear not, nor be dismayed. You know what that word dismayed means in the Hebrew? Here's where some light is thrown in on it. That word dismayed means literally to look on each other. To look on each other. The idea is that there is a real problem and you don't have the answer for it. And so you look anxiously at each other in fear and dismay. What are we going to do? Looking on each other. What are we going to do? Whether or not you know the dictionary definition of fear or the Hebrew meaning of dismayed, you know right well what it feels like to be afraid and to be dismayed because of your situation. It's a common experience to all of God's people. That's why there is so much teaching in the Word of God dealing with fear. So much. He knows His people. That means that this is a promise that all of God's people have a right to claim and to plead before the Lord. In the first place, I want to point out that this plague of fear is found, I said it's common to all of God's people, let me delineate for a little bit. It's found among God's chosen, among His chosen. Verses 8 and 9, look at them please. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee. So he's writing to his chosen ones, ones whom he has sovereignly showed great mercy to and done great things for, and they are afraid. It's a wonderful thing, you know, to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, that's a choice that won't be undone. It won't be taken back. If you're chosen, you're chosen. You're chosen for eternity. It's wonderful. It, 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 it's greatly exhilarating, and it is, it's deeply humbling at the same time to think that we have been predestined to live with those who will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God. But for all of the chosen's high and glorious privileges, 
and for all their heavenly blessings, and for all that the Lord has done for them for so many years, all the prayers that have been answered, all the interventions that he's given to them, all the promises of his word, all the sermons that have been heard, in spite of that all, these very same people can be plagued with this awful disease of fear. You would think that being one of God's chosen, one of his peculiar people, one of those who therefore have come under his special care and providence, that there would never be a moment's dread, never be an ounce of fear, but we all know otherwise. We all know that's not the case. And why is that not the case? It's because of sin. Adam knew absolutely nothing of sinful fear until he did what God told him not to do. Sin entered his heart. And his first response, afraid, he hid himself. Fear. And that sin has been passed on down to us. And even though we are saved, that sin will still dwell within us. It will remain with us until the day we die, and therefore we will find ourselves afraid. And you will find fear amongst the holiest of believers, the oldest of saints. Furthermore, among God's chosen family, there are those who are plagued with fear, not only, not only because of sin that dwells within them, but because of their natural temperament. That's just how they're made. It's true they need to be challenged about their needless fears, their proneness to walk as the ones Bunyan described as Mr. Ready to Halt and Mr. Fearing. But the Lord has a special word for those among his people that are like this. Paul said, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. It's far better, you know, that you come fearful and trembling into heaven than go boldly into hell without any fear. Oh, it's among the chosen that fear is found. The plague of fear that makes this promise in God's word so necessary can also be found among God's courageous, not just his chosen, but his courageous people. Courageous Abraham gathered his servants and delivered Lot from King Keraleomer. That was bold, boy. He just took his servants, armed them, we're going after an army. He went, he went into battle with them. That was bravery. But in the first verse of the very next chapter, the Lord speaks to Abram in a vision and says, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He had to say that to him. He had to fear not because he was fearing. Courageous, but fearing. David was as fearless as they come. He had no fear of Goliath, nine foot tall giant. The whole Israeli, Israelite army stood trembling in their boots. David, what are you afraid of? This uncircumcised Philistine. I'm going to take off his head. It wasn't an empty boast, folks. This was a stripling. This was a teenager. <laughs> Can you do it? Can you imagine it? A kid? No semi-automatic? You know? I've got a sling. And I'm good with it. I'm taking him out. No fear. But we read that David was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He was so courageous, 
He would slay his ten thousands, but this mighty warrior, bold, courageous, was overcome with fear in front of King Achish. Elijah could actually stand on Mount Carmel and mock the 450 false prophets of Baal and then slay them all without an ounce of fear. But when Jezebel threatened his life, he fled from her in fear. What of bold Peter? What of fearless Paul who could face down kings and governors? Peter denied the Lord out of fear. Bold Peter. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So even the most courageous can be found plagued with this disease of fear. You see, the fact still remains that men at their best are just, just men. That's all, that's all they are. Frail, feeble, weak men. This plague of fear in the second place arises from many factors. This fear that comes and cripples us and gets people, God's people in a, in a vice, squeezing them, crushing them, paralyzing them. To, to put it another way, there are many strains of this virus, if I can call it that, so that while they all give rise to the ailment of fear, the environmental factors that stir up this plague within the heart are many. It seems to lie dormant for a while till you just get the right environment. And then it rears itself up. And you become sick with fear. The fear will come on because of the dispensations of life in the first place. The dispensations of life, I, I'm using the term dispensation in its theological sense. A dispensation is God's administration of, his ordering of all the events of our lives, and particularly in this vein, the ordering of all of our temporal circumstances. Everything has been planned. Every day of your life has been planned by God. Every day of your life, every moment of every day has been planned by God. All that happens is by a divine decree. Not by chance, accident, happenstance. It's all been fixed. The path before you has been fixed by God. Everything that happens, everyone you meet, everything you go through, it's all been ordained by the Lord. That we know in our minds. But it's when that bit of theology has to meet the rubber of practice, the road, the rubber meets the road of practice that we find ourselves at times, for all that we know theologically, apprehension, anxiety, and fear and dismay come and ruin our day. We got the theology down. We can tell others, we can teach them about it, but why then does this fear fill our hearts? Dispensations of God. Being afraid of losing your job, which means a loss of your income and the potential loss of your possessions, is a fear of God's dispensations for your life. How am I going to make it? How am I going to live? You may never make the connection. You may only see it as a fear of and worry over loss. And what am I going to do if, but in reality, it's being afraid of what God has planned for your temporary stay here on earth. It's being afraid of what God has planned for your temporary stay here on earth. Isn't it? You're afraid what the Lord has planned. Isn't that a strange one? It doesn't take a crash of the stock market to produce fear and dismay in the heart of a child of God. It may be something so minor as, am I going to be able to pay my bills this month? 
How can I make ends meet while the cost of living increases, but my income stays the same? It's the old fear that Christ dealt with in the Gospels. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? And wherewithal shall we be clothed? These dispensations goes well beyond the issues of, of finances. It certainly can come to a matter of family issues. Your children their lives, your grandchildren, their lives, your spouse, your loved ones. Dispensations of life. Sometimes this fear arises from deception. Deception. The strongest of Christians have been plagued with this fear that they have deceive themselves about their own salvation. They are afraid that they'll be like that branch in John chapter 15, of which Christ speaks, that was only connected to Christ in appearance. And so they will be cut off and cast into the fires of hell. They're afraid that they're not really among the elect of God. And they know that if you're not among the elect of God, it is over. There is no chance of you ever getting into the elect of God. They fear that they have deceived themselves about being born again. They are afraid that they're not in possession of true faith and, and true repentance. They haven't really been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Some of God's children have experienced fear that they are a hypocrite, which is a strange fear, since a real hypocrite doesn't have any fear. It's the hypocrite who goes on through life quite peaceful and without fear and very confident about his state when he actually has no ground whatsoever of having any confidence. None. He has, but he thinks he does. I, I agree with that old preacher who said that it's better to go to heaven doubting than to go to hell presuming. Far better. Better to go to heaven assured, confident, but better to go to heaven doubting than go into hell presuming. But it would be best, of course, if all fear about self-deception was removed entirely. Yet, yet still, it's a plague that's so common to the Lord's people that, as I've repeated to you often, one of Spurgeon's frequent comments was that he doubts the man who's never doubted his salvation. It is so common. The fear that I'm, I'm deceived. There's also the fear that arises of desertion. Either God will desert you or that you will desert God. Perhaps that's more than anything else. Yet, yes, we can be found thinking that God will desert us. He will abandon us. He will reject us because of our sin, because, well, of our lack of faith, our lack of love, our disobedience, our unbelief, our unfaithfulness to Him. And so the list goes on. We can build quite a case, can't we? We can build quite a case why God should abandon us, why God should desert us. If we know ourselves at all. We can give him a thousand and one reasons why he should walk away from us and leave us to our sins. The fear comes that we'll desert God. We'll defect from the faith. That we won't persevere to the end. That it's going to come a time when the price will be so high that we'll not be able to pay it. I'll not be able to hold on or hold out to the end is the fear. A temptation that there's going to be a straw that's going to break the camel's back. There's also the fear of death.
it comes time, whenever the time is. When you're young, youthful, energetic, you don't give a second thought really to death. You have all the energy in the world, you think. But most of you here aren't in that category. You have felt the age draw on and draw you closer to that time of your departure, your exodus from this world. The body is telling you continually. It's wearing out. It's getting weaker. I was doing some work in the back of my deck and it was you'll see that my age is coming in here because it was sort of low to the ground the work I had to do and I said well I'm just going to get a folding chair and set it down here so I can sit down and do this work well I did that and I sat down and I didn't think about the ground right there was very soft from it being watered and that back leg just went straight down and I went rolling I didn't hurt myself, but I realize that I'm not rolling now as I did 10, 15 years ago. I realized I'm getting older. This body is wearing out. It can't do what it used to do. Death isn't that far off for any of us. How will I do? When I'm faced with that ultimate reality, it's time for me to die. There's a third thought. God has a sure cure for the plague of fear. From looking at verses, the end of verse 9 and 10, it's obvious that God's cure for this plague of fear is, is doctrine. Always is that way, you know. It's always truth that God uses. But not just doctrine. Knowledge of doctrine we need if we're going to enjoy God's remedy, cure for our, our fears. But it is, it's faith in that doctrine. Rather, faith in the God that this doctrine reveals that's going to be the cure. So, so what, what truth about God does he reveal that's designed to heal us of this plague of fear and dismay as, as we believe on it and as we trust the one who's given it? Well, what does he say? It's quite, it's quite easy to grasp to his people. And these, these Jews were afraid that they were just gripped by fear. They felt hopeless and passed over and cast aside. And the first thing the Lord says, He will always be with us. And I don't want to take that ever for granted. He will always be with us. Fear not, for I am with thee. That's the first thing that He says. The first thing, I'm with you. You're not alone. You'll never be alone. I will always be with you. I'll always be at your side. I will always be near. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. That's what the hymn writer said. So it, it, it doesn't really matter, does it? the situation, the circumstances, where you are, what you're in. It doesn't really matter. The Lord says, I'm with you. It's okay. You don't need to be afraid. He could have stopped right there, and that would have been sufficient. If we have the Lord with us, what else do we need? If we have the Lord with us, we can do without everything else. If we have him, No matter how hard it gets, how seemingly impossible the situation, and the Lord, through the Scriptures, has 
oftentimes brought his children into what is so apparently to the naked eye an impossible situation and made it clear, well, I'm with you. I'm here. Always near. Never will he desert us. He'll never, ever do that because he's promised he wouldn't do that. So really, we need to stop behaving as if God is not good for his word, as if he's told us a pack of lies. He hasn't. Not only does he say, I'll be with you, but he will always be our God. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. We may lose everything as far as this world's goods, but we will never lose our God. Goods may go, but God never will go. And that's really all that matters, isn't it? Really, I think it's so often much more a case of, I'm afraid of what I'll lose temporally. It's not so much the fear of losing God, it's the, afraid, it's the fear of what I'm going to lose in the temporal realm. It's more of a fear I'm going to lose my goods, I'm going to lose my comfort, but not the concern, I'm going to lose God. Some preacher said, I don't know who could just remember, remember the saying, it just caught my ears. And, and, and dealing with Jonah... He said, we may lose our gourd, but we'll never lose our God. And that's so very true. I read the story of a mother who lost her husband. Young mother, young children. She sat in her house, in her black dress, weeping. Not for a day or for a week, but month after month after month, she sat in her house, dressed in her black dress, weeping. One day, one of her little children came up to her and said, Mother, is God dead? And that brought her out of her fear and dismay. No child, God is not dead. God says, I am thy God, and if he is our God now, that means that he will be our God forever because God never changes. Just think upon and meditate on what that means to all those fears about God's dispensations, about self-deception, about desertion, about death. That's the answer. I'm always going to be your God. And that means you're always going to be my people. If I'm your God, that means you're my people. And you'll never do anything to change that. He's also promised us, this is part of the cure for the fear, he will strengthen us when we are weak. I mean, there is this fear of failure, of defeat. We, we do fail. But because we may fail in something that we attempt to do for the Lord does not make us a failure. Our unfaithfulness to God will never stand in the way of God's faithfulness to us. Never. Our success is not dependent on our strength, but on his. Not by might or power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I know one thing, without Christ, you and I can do absolutely nothing, but we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. Oh, you know the verses. You can quote them off from memory as well as I can. But you still get afraid, don't you? 
Just confess it. It's one thing having a scripture verse memorized. It's another thing to rest on the God who's given the promise of the scripture verse. We no need to fear that we'll not have enough spiritual strength to make it to the end. He says, I'm going to strengthen you. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. My finishing the course, regardless of all the commands I have to plow on and not look back, all the commands I have to run with patience the race that's fixed before me, I know at the end of the day, it depends on him, not upon me. He also says you can count on the Lord to help you. Right? I will help thee. Strength is one thing that truth that tells us that God will also come alongside and work with us. Whenever we need help and seek his help, he will come to our aid. We need help. It's, it's only our sinful folly that blinds our eyes to that fact every day of the week. We need help. I've told you the story before, but I'll, it bears repeating. True story. Again, I read this thing years and years and years ago little boy wanted to help his father. His father was a preacher. He was upstairs in his bedroom and he sent his little boy downstairs into his study to bring back a book that was on his desk. It was a big book. That little boy was quite eager to help dad. He got that big book on his father's desk. He drug it to the foot of the stairs and he started to climb the stairs and didn't get beyond a couple of steps because it was just too big for him. And he sat down and started crying because he couldn't take the book to his dad. He felt like he was a failure. Well, the father heard his boy crying, went down to him and picked him up along with the book and took him upstairs. He carried him because he had no strength. Brothers and sisters, we're going we're gonna to be shocked when God shows us in eternity how often he just carried us. We had no strength. And we thought he had abandoned us. But all along, he was carrying us with our burdens. He says, finally, he will never let you go, but always hold you up. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That is an exp- a Hebrew expression that speaks of the faithfulness of God, upholding his people, faithfully, continually upholding them. You see why? Because they thought they had been cast away by the hand of God. God says, that hand you thought was going to cast you away, it's upholding you. Upholding. You want to picture that this morning? The Lord, the Lord God holding your hand and said, I'll never let it go. And that's, that's the picture he's painting. I've got your hand. I'm going to hold you. I'll never take that hand and throw you away. I'm going to keep on holding on to you. When you are afraid, it's what you need to remember. The Lord's got my hand. When you feel all alone, it's there you must remember the truth. God's upholding me with his hand. He's got hold of me. When your world crumbles around you, you must remember, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. When, when your steps stumble, you falter, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. And when you face death, I'll be holding your hand the whole time. 
and I myself will take you across the Jordan into my glory. So don't be afraid. That's the Lord's cure. If you'll stay just for another few minutes or something, I, I need to say. There's a reason why I did not finish with 1 Peter or begin with 1 Peter 4 this morning. For those who haven't heard the MRI that uh, my wife had last Monday indicated that both tumors continue to grow and that the second tumor is growing at a faster rate than the first one. The only option left at this juncture is one final surgery, which, which Kim has not decided whether or not she is going to have it. So the tumors will continue to grow until either she elects to have the surgery or allows it to take its course, which will uh, take her home to be with the Lord. I know that all of you have seen the steady decline in her ability to walk. You only see it once or twice a week, but I live with it, and it's continued to decline. And it's only going to increase with the passage of time. Climbing the stairs at home continues to become more and more difficult. And simple tasks like meal preparation have become a serious challenge. If she has another surgery, it will take its toll on what little ability she has to walk. In light of my wife's ongoing health issues, which are only going to increase in the months that lie ahead, I am stepping down as the pastor of this church. I simply cannot continue on with all of my responsibilities here in the church and give my wife the kind of care that she's going to need. I've been struggling with and praying over this decision for many months, unbeknownst to you. I knew this day would come eventually, and I imagine that most of you knew it would come as well. But that doesn't remove the sadness that I feel in telling you this news, nor the sadness that you must feel in hearing it. You have been a very faithful band of believers these past 17 years who have stood with me and the Lord through good times and bad. I am saddened at having to say goodbye to those who have been like family to us. But I know that this is what the Lord wants me to do, and I would be sinning if I did otherwise. We will soon put our home up for sale, and once sold, it's our plan to move to the Greenville area, where we'll attend our church there. Until that time comes, I want to continue preaching here at Covenant and do whatever I can to minister to your needs. We covet your prayers, especially now, as there are many decisions we have to make for which we're going to need the Lord's wisdom. These were, will not be easy times for any of us, but I have been comforted recently by something David wrote in Psalm 57. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, 
unto God that performeth all things for me. In the near future, the Presbytery will appoint an interim moderator. After my departure, he will arrange for ministers to come and to fill the pulpit until you call another man to be your pastor. I want to thank you for your love and your prayers, the help, the lessons you've taught me in the time here. We need not be afraid. God's told us this morning there's no need for fear. He will do exactly what he said he will do. May God give us all the grace to trust him. Let's pray. O God and Father, we come at the end of this meeting. We thank thee, Lord. Thy word is true. We cast ourselves upon it. We pray, our God, that we will be found waiting on the Lord. And thou wilt encourage our hearts. Come, we pray, and preserve this little flock of believers. Grant, Lord, grace to all to follow the Lord, to follow the shepherd. Thy promise is that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. We believe it, Lord, even through hard times. Come and encourage thy folk here. Show us the way ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.